Today on Fifth Emission, you get to meet one of our newsroom's top editors, a guy who works really hard behind the scenes to bring you our most important investigations and our most compelling feature stories. Michael Gray, our investigations editor, oversees the Chronicle's most impactful work, and he's also like my vice president in the newsroom. We're going to talk about what makes him a unique editor, what stories you can expect in the coming months from his team, and why he deals more with our lawyers than anyone else at the Chronicle. That's today on Fifth and Mission. Michael, welcome to Fifth and Mission. Thank you. This is my first time. I'm and excited. It's I know. It's very exciting to have you here. What is your job here? How do you explain it to people? Gosh, it's a lot of different things, but I mean, my focus is on helping the newsroom come up with uh, enterprise stories that are not the breaking news that we do every day, but things we invest time in and resources in and try to do things that, as my boss likes to say, can change the world. Yes, you sound like you have a very smart boss. (laughs) Uh, No, it's really important. And you also uh, manage the investigative team that we started four years ago now. It's probably Uh, about four years ago. End of 2015. Yeah. So you oversee them. Tell us about the first story that the investigation's team worked on. Do you remember it? I do. It was a uh, interesting story that came to us, uh, oddly enough, from our social reporter here at the Chronicle. She's no longer with us, but she worked with our investigative team. She said, I know about this charity in town where the person who runs it seems to be like raising money and only spending it on high fashion and parties and things like that. She'd been trying to get at this story for a while and was not successful. So when we created the investigative team, we had some people who could help her track down the documents and data and information that we needed to prove what was going on. That became our first story, and we exposed this uh, charity and got them to change their uh, tune. Now, this charity had actually in some years taken in thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars in donations from people. And basically what they did, the leader of this organization would go to her fancy friends who would buy designer ball gowns for tens of thousands of dollars, and they'd only wear them once, and then they'd give them to her, and she would resell them and use the proceeds to benefit presumably children with developmental disabilities. But there were years in which they gave out not a single dollar to help disadvantaged children. Yeah, and even the people who were helping her out uh, for many years started suspecting and started talking to us about that. It was interesting to see how people who had been her biggest fans, uh, some of them became some of her biggest critics. Yeah, and I remember when that story actually came down, like it was the talk of San Francisco for a while. Everybody had sort of had suspicions about this. So what's happening with this charity now, to your knowledge? As far as I know, they have reorganized. They've got a new leader. They have allied with some other uh, organizations in town that also work with developmentally disabled people and are actually doing good work again. There are still some questions about some things. We probably should catch up with that again, but that's another story. I have no doubt that we will. (laughs) So we started this investigations team in 2015, and you were not working here at the time. You had worked at the Chronicle previously. Yes. I seem to recall you were going to become, I, I remember having this conversation where you were going to become an investigations editor, but then you decided to take a job with the Wall Street Journal. 
Well, yeah, I mean, uh, those don't fall out of the sky, those jobs. So, yeah, I, uh, I abandoned here with a heavy heart, but then went to uh, work at the Wall Street Journal for a couple of years until they, with a heavy heart, said, thank you, we've had enough of your work here. And, uh, <laughs> that happens in journalism yes, sometimes. Well, at the same time, you know, this was about the time when Spotlight had come out. There's a story here, and I think everybody will hear about it. Do you think your paper has the resources to take that on? I do. Do you? And the producers of Spotlight had done a screening for Chronicle employees, and I was not able to go to it, but our then-publisher, Jeff Johnson, was able to go. And the next morning, he came into my office and he said, hey, you know that investigations team that you have been talking about that you really want to start? How much will that cost? And I looked at him and I said, seriously, you saw a movie and now I get an I-team? And he looked at me and he said, seriously, you're arguing with me about this? <laughs> and that was like the humble beginnings of the investigations team. And when I went back to you, I think via email or something, and like persuaded you that you needed to come back at the Chronicle. But investigations wasn't what you were really passionate about necessarily. You're really more of a writer editor. Well, yeah. I mean, my background is a lot in um, actually feature stories and magazine writing and in-depth kind of personal stories. But I, it's interesting. The first thing we actually worked on together before there was an I-team was a story that sort of was an investigation. It was the story that became Last Men Standing, a very big project that we did that took quite a while. And it was based on the idea that there are men here in San Francisco who survived the AIDS crisis only to find themselves struggling in their later years because they had no idea they were going to live so long. That tip came from the reporter doing her business and doing her work and finding out about this. That grew into something that was kind of a nice uh, way to start because it, it was a heavily reported you know, to some degree, an investigative story, but was it, we were able to tell it in a really compelling way and even make a nice hour-long documentary that went with it. And I think that was a great way to cut our teeth and see what was possible by making a really important issue also very readable. Yeah, I'm really glad you mentioned that story because I think a lot of people who saw it in its final edition or saw the documentary probably wouldn't have guessed that it took six months to edit that thing? Four months? I mean, it took, it went through a lot of machinations. And one of the reasons why is because, you know, I, it's not, not my editing skill to be a narrative editor. And it's not, You're too modest. Oh, no, well, it's not what I'm, it's not what I'm good at. And, and there, most of our editors here, we're traditional news editors. It's a different skill to be able to do narrative editing. And that story benefited a lot from your help and being able to tell a really compelling story from the beginning to the end of it. Yeah, and weaving together, you know, the, the lives of pretty uh, eight very fascinating men into one kind of compelling narrative and carrying the reader along, too, across a journey that took a couple of decades was uh, it was a tall order. And the reporter really hung in there and, and did a great job. The movie makers also just really nailed it. Yeah. One of the things I really believe, and I know you do, too, about our investigations is sometimes we investigate really complicated things. You know, for how long did we investigate PG&E after the San Bruno explosion? And writing about pipelines underground and pressure testing, like, 
that's some boring stuff if you do not have characters and people to pull you through the story. And right now, you and the I-team are working on um, a major ongoing investigation into the cleanup of America's largest Superfund site, the Hunter's Point Shipyard. (laughs) Right. And that's another example of like these radiological tests and the data and all. This is could be some dull stuff if it wasn't for some really talented narrative editing and writing. Do you want to talk about how you're approaching that story? Yeah. Well, I mean, this has been a, as you said, it's ongoing. So some of the stories that we're doing, some of the shorter term quicker turn things. They are pretty straightforward, but we've taken a a couple of swings at some longer pieces. The first one, I think, is the best example, which is after these reporters started checking into this thing, this is a project that's that's been going on like forever, decades, but they started looking at it in a different way and finding new sources and looking at documents that hadn't been looked at and found a story there about these cops, uh, San Francisco cops who were put out on this Superfund site to work every day in the middle of a, a Superfund cleanup where there was all kinds of toxic stuff, including radioactivity, and just told, uh, It'll be, you'll be fine. Don't worry about anything. I mean, essentially. We're, I'm, I'm, I'm yeah, there, there's a scene. There's two scenes in those stories that really stick out to me. One of them is when the cops are outside running, and they're running past on the same property as people with full-on bunny suit hazardous cleanup. Like they're covered head to toe and these cops are out there in shorts running around and exercising. And the other story was about the officer who put some relatively new running shoes in his locker and came back the next day and what had happened to them. Uh, At least one of the shoes had basically melted. The bottom of the shoe had kind of come off because of what they'd run over, I suppose. We were very lucky, I think, after we formed the iTunes, we also were blessed by uh, the publisher with being able to hire a guy who is an incredible writer, a guy who's uh, done a lot of magazine work and, and a couple of books, Jason Fagone, and he teamed up with one of our iTeam reporters, Cynthia Dizikas, to do these stories, and he brought a different level of writing, I think, and storytelling to that, so that all the data and all the facts and all those things that we're really good at you know, doing and checking and putting together were told in a story that actually took you through these guys' lives on the, on the site and also h- how they came to be there and how that site came to be there, going back to the first atomic bomb tests in the South Pacific. So it really was an epic kind of tale, and um, it was rewarding to see that readers, both in print and online, really stuck with the story. I think it had both uh, a lot of what we call engagement, which is you know how long people are spending on it, and also just how many people actually read it and shared it and all those things that we like to do today. Yeah. One of the things that is unique about your job and the level of stories that you're working on here is that you deal a lot with Diego. Do you want to tell everybody who Diego is? Diego. Doesn't that sound romantic? (laughs) (laughs) Is Uh, it romantic to deal with Diego? Because it's uh, not always. (laughs) I I would say no, but it's, it's sometimes fun and it's sometimes trying. Diego is uh, Diego Ibargen, and he is our one of our main lawyers at the Hearst Corporation. Every time we do a story that brings up issues of either legality or possible liability, or just we want to make sure that someone is checking our facts and we are checking our facts and he's telling us, do you know this for sure? Uh, he looks at our stories and walks us through them. And it can be a, a long and painful exercise. Diego was a journalist actually before he became a lawyer. And that's a great thing and a bad thing sometimes because he goes so far as not just to say, are the facts right? Have you proven this? All that. But he's also correcting our punctuation and grammar sometimes. Yeah, <laughs> he's so great. Uh, you know, and he also really believes 
in not only getting the story right, but getting the stories out there too. And I think a lot of people would be surprised at the level I mean, not only the editing and going through up to six months on a story, but the level of Diego going through even, you know, asking about adverbs that we use and whether we can defend them and getting the documents. And that's important on the shipyard case because we've been told that, you know, there are a lot of lawyers for the housing developer, which stands to lose a lot of money. These people are... um, they're sending us a lot of letters. They're very concerned. So we really need to get all of our, you know, make sure that we are 1,000% correct on things. Well, and, and I think that starts with the reporters. They are a, a different breed, I think. They are very, they can be very obsessive, very uh, stubborn, very um, dogged people. And they are actually people who get excited by pouring through these endless mind-numbing documents that they have to look at looking for answers and clues to what they're looking for. And sometimes they find, you know, that smoking gun that they're looking for. But there are also people who really care about wrongdoing and questionable behavior and want to expose, you know, secret things that are affecting people's lives. These people also are, like I say, obsessive about facts, about checking, about double-checking, triple-checking. And then we go through that with Diego, too. And I just thought I'd mention just coincidentally, today while we're recording this is International Fact-Checking Day. I oh, excellent. I yes. didn't. Mm-hmm. We should send Diego a bouquet. <laughs> we love you, Diego. Uh, so besides the reporters being very diligent, you know, there's been a rise, I think, in the importance and emphasis that news organizations have placed on investigative reporting. Why do you think that has changed over the last couple of years? Well, I think our experience here is sort of indicative of that. I think people have reinvested a lot of places, even as the, our industry goes through some throes of, you know, right-sizing or whatever the right term is. You know, I think the fact that there are fewer and fewer sources for actual, real, non-fake news and uh, people investing that know that people want to know what's going on out there and they want to know what the secrets are. The, the number of news sources that are willing to put in the time and energy to do these kinds of stories is fewer and fewer. But we've seen, especially among the long, uh, big national papers, you know, every, every reporter in Washington is now basically <laughs> an investigative reporter. And, you know, some of these huge stories that have broken on uh, the Me Too movement and Harvey Weinstein and things about the president, these are things that uh, they would not come to light unless people were spending the time and resources to, to get them. And I think what we've seen is readers appreciate that. So there's a number of ways you get ideas for investigations. Do you want to go through how, – how, how do you decide what to go investigate? Well, first I ask you if you think it's interesting, and then I, then I go from there. <laughs> That's very smart, <laughs> managing up. <laughs> um, but no, I mean these things can come from anywhere. They come from beat reporters who are working on something. They come from anonymous callers who call in and say, hey, I have a tip. But, you know, they can come from almost anywhere. Uh, sometimes we'll publish a news story in the Chronicle and someone will call up or email and say, hey, you know what, you guys should look into this aspect of that story. You know, the reporters have sources who tip them off to things. As I said, our charity investigation started with the society reporter who was talking to some of the fancy people in town. Another one about a, a chef and restaurant owner who uh, was accused of sexually harassing his staff came from one of our food writers. So it's not like everybody is like just on the phone with deep throat listening and hearing what's going on. We love to get tips from, from anybody, and uh, we, we do that, you know, simple as a phone call or an email to any of us. But also we've set up uh, now some confidential 
ways to do that. We have a, uh, a confidential phone line and text line that people can uh, get us on, and we've created a secure server. People can email us and get in touch with us about stories and send us documents and secret things without having their identity revealed. So one of the things I hear from people is like they say, well, you should go and investigate Muni or you should investigate BART. And and I try to explain that's that's not really the sort of tip that we're looking for. It needs to be something concrete. So what, in your opinion, makes a good tip? How do you know which ones to go after and which ones are just so open that we could spin <laughs> our wheels for months and not find anything? Well, like you say, you know, if somebody says, hey, investigate BART, you know, we write about BART almost every other day in the Chronicle. But, you know, we need to watch for things that might tell us something beyond what the news says. We're writing a, a story, I think, for this weekend about how BART is having trouble with its extension down to San Jose. Should we look at the contracts that are going on there? Should we look at some of the decisions that have been made? Should we look at, you know, whether someone is uh, uh, holding things up? Finding the specifics in a story and digging into those. And not every one of those things pans out. I mean, part of our job is to actually sort through these things and say, is there something there? And, uh, you know, we probably drop as many investigation leads as we as we follow. Oh, I would uh, guess probably a lot more. Probably more, yeah. Yeah. I, I think there's a perception that everything that you tell a reporter is going to end up as a story. And there's a lot of criteria. We, ha- you know, it has to be factual for one. We have to be able to prove it. It has to impact enough people for it to be worthwhile or have wrongdoing, right. or it has to speak to, you know, a, a bigger issue in society. And, you know, you said it at the beginning, but I always say our job is to earn new readers and save the world. And it has to make the community better if we're going to invest really a lot of time and money into doing it. And we had talked before about, you know, what makes a good tip and what makes a bad tip. And I, my definition of a good tip is one that gets us a Pulitzer Prize ultimately. That's that's my, (laughs) that's the best one. I mean, I wouldn't turn that down, but like saving the world (laughs) would be good too. But but I mean, you know, almost anything somebody here on staff can check out is welcome. It doesn't mean the whole investigative team will be put on it. You know, a reporter who knows that subject might check it out. But the fact is we can't be everywhere or know everything. We rely on people to help us figure out what's going on around us. And and especially if someone has knowledge of something the rest of us can't possibly be aware of, someone inside an, an organization or an agency or something that knows secrets only they can know, That's that. those are things that really, you know, can get us going. A bad tip, um, I, I think really the only ones that are bad really are those that are maybe wrong or misguided. We often hear from people looking to settle a score or have a very personal beef, or just want to tell us about some fast, fantastical scenario that it's pretty clear is either mostly or completely imaginary, we still regularly get tips from people, including one today, from someone either claiming to know or claiming to be the Zodiac Killer from 15 yes, years ago. Yes, we get a lot of those <laughs> at the Chronicle, a lot of people who know who the Zodiac is. You know, while you were going through that, it occurred to me one thing we should probably talk about is anonymous sources. And it seems like a lot of reporters are just now realizing the public thinks an anonymous source is somebody who we don't know who they are. So what is our policy on anonymous sources? You know, I was thinking about that, and I think that term has become both a, a really romantic notion uh, but also a big albatross for journalists. I mean, you can't make a movie about a newspaper without a deep throat, right, because that's how we get our information. But uh, not not all investigative work relies on that. Um, 
Uh, you see it Actually, a lot. I don't know if any of our stories are great investigations that we've done have relied on anonymous sources, well, you know, and, at, or at least not in the printed version. They may have been a tip. but Right. I think that's the thing. And, and anonymous means a lot of things. It means people can contact us anonymously, but before we do anything with it, we either check them out or we corroborate what they say or something like that. It's not like, oh, this person told me this anonymously. I'm putting it in the paper. In fact, our ethics policy has very uh, particular rules about how we deal with people who want to be anonymous. Yeah, one of the rules is not only does the reporter have to know who they are, but so does an editor. And yeah. then if I choose to ask who it is, I can find out too. Yeah. I don't I don't always because if it's somebody, you know, who is providing us information maybe illegally, we could all end up in a court bench and I don't want to end up on a court bench. So sometimes the fewer people who know the better, but we do reserve the right just right. to make sure it's an in, a process that has a lot of integrity. Well, that's why you have me as your buffer. That's right. right. That's what you're here for. Uh, but no, I mean, I think the rule basically comes down to if somebody has some important information that we can't get another way and it's clear their job or their personal safety or something like that might be at stake if their identity was known, then we ha still have to decide, is it worth publishing? Is that the right thing to do? Or how do we corroborate that information and get it another way? All right, Michael, I could talk with you forever about this, but that's why we have weekly and daily meetings. Uh, we don't have to share it with everybody. But I do want to ask you two more questions. Mm -hmm. What is the best part of your job and what is the worst part of your job? You know, and was... just be careful what you say. <laughs> I was hoping you would ask that. <laughs> Uh, no, worst part, I will start first. Deadlines, I can't, are the worst part of my job. I hate deadlines. But really, I don't think there really is any worst part. Um, you know, there's stuff that doesn't get me so excited every day, like some of the bureaucracy that goes along with being what? a manager. What? But but then I think about all the stuff that you have to do, and I feel much <laughs> That's better bureaucracy. and count my blessings. <laughs> the best part is the same thing that it's been, I think, for most of my career. It's working with reporters and working with stories. I became an editor because I like being part of a team that, you know, is able to create something unique every time out. And still being able to do that after you know, some decades in the news business is uh, pretty amazing and, and a blessing. Well, I think it's pretty amazing and a blessing to have you here and have the I-Team in our newsroom now. Thank you very much, Michael Gray, for being on Fifth and Mission today. Thank you for having me. Thanks so much for listening, and thank you to Michael Gray, the Chronicle's Managing Editor of Investigations and Enterprise. Fifth and Mission is part of the San Francisco Chronicle Podcast Network. If you like this show, we'd love it if you'd subscribe to it wherever you get your podcasts. And if you've got a minute to give us a quick review, that helps us build our audience so we can keep growing. You can support Fifth and Mission and the newsroom that creates it with a subscription to the San Francisco Chronicle. There are print and digital editions. Find out more at sfchronicle.com slash subscribe. <laughs>